Father, what a beautiful day. Thank you so much, Lord, for a little bit of relief and all the cold. Um, thank you for the warmth. And thank you, Lord, for warm families and friends and laughter and conversation. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us. You are the God who sets our feet upon a rock when we are surrounded by stormy winds. You're the one who even leads us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, even paths of righteousness that may go through the valley of the shadow of death. And so, Lord, now today as we jump into Psalm 24, we pray that you would guide us through this psalm and help us that that we would be drawn in and celebrate in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let me me go ahead and read Psalm 24. Unlike uh, the previous, uh, uh, like unlike Psalm 22, where there's a huge shift in the middle or a break, or like some of the other Psalms uh, where there's any of that, there's a different format, a little bit different format with Psalm 24, and uh, I'll bring it all out. But if you, as I read, just pay attention, look for, uh, see if you follow the format or the flow of Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, and that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. So I'm calling it the King of Glory. Makes good sense, right? Because repeated twice in the Psalm, and it's Psalm 24. Um, I did change this. Thank you for catching that. Originally, the sign up here that said the King of Glory. I thought, well, there's a fitting place for that, but I did fix it. So, so here's how it breaks down. Um, there's a comprehensive aspect in verses one through two, then a very concentrated in verses 3 through 6, and then finally conquest, verses 7 through 10, I think helps to get the the thought there. And you want to think of a funnel, okay? I've got a funnel here. Verses 1 and 2 are the big mouth at the top, and we'll get into all of that, and then it begins to coalesce or come down this way through these three points. I hope the funnel, if you keep that in mind, I hope that'll help uh, to see how the psalm is moving. It's actually moving towards verses 7 through 10. Okay, so first, some possible context. There's no historical episode noted as the backdrop of the psalm, nothing at the beginning of the psalm. As you read the psalm, is there any moment, and if it's a psalm of David, is there any moment in David's life that maybe this might relate to? Anybody know? Any ideas, suggestions, thoughts? No, okay. Let me help you. But one wonders if something like 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 15 might be the inspired, might be what inspired the writing of the psalm. That's when David, the second time, goes and gets the Ark of the Covenant to bring it to Jabus, which we know of as Jerusalem. He just recently conquered Jabus, and now it's Jerusalem, and there is where he's going to put the Ark of the Covenant while the tabernacle continues over. Um, in Shechem, I think it is. Um, but he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant up there. And so you remember, does anybody remember the scene as it's coming, as he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant towards Jerusalem? What, what's the scene? you remember? He's dancing, there's celebration, right? What happens every, like, six steps as they bring the Ark? There's a sacrifice. It's like he sacrifices every six steps, something like that, Okay. And so then he's also dancing, so there's going to be celebration, there's music. And you can just imagine this moment as he's coming up to Jerusalem, you know, the climax being verses 7 through 10. 
We don't know that for a fact, but that scene uh, may have been the scene that inspired Psalm 24. This may have been written just for that scene, or it may not have been. It may have been written for a different one, but maybe that gives you a little background. Does that make sense? Okay. And so, First Chronicles 15, So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. When you get to verses 7 through 10, you can't miss the fact that it's a responsive psalm at this point for sure. That there's a back and forth and forthness to it. So we'll get into that more when we get there. So that's a possible context. And I think that's a, just as legitimate as most any other context you can come up with. But that actually fits. Um, but that's just me. All right, so comprehensive verses 1 through 2. By comprehensive, what I mean is worldwide and universal. What do you see worldwide and universal in verses 1 and 2? Okay, all that we have is God's... Yeah, creator, sustainer. All of the earth is, is, uh, belongs to the Lord. All the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, etc. Right? There's just this large Catholic or comprehensive aspect. Uh, of verses 1 through 2. That's the big mouth of the funnel. Remember, I had a picture of the funnel. There's a big mouth of the funnel. Okay? In the Hebrew, it's rather emphatic. It begins actually this way, <coughs> which in Hebrew is pretty pronounced, to Yahweh. So notice your translation puts uh, God's name further down in the, in the verse, but in the Hebrew, He's the first thing in the verse, to Yahweh the earth and what fills it, the world and who dwells in it. That's a Mike Philiber translation, okay? But it's an emphatic, it's to Yahweh belongs all of this. Okay, that's pretty cool. And um, so it's good to know that that, that that emphasis is at the very beginning, to Yahweh belongs all of this, just to emphasize that. We know it, but it's good to be reminded in a way that catches your attention, and that's what's going on in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew. So I guess you could take verses 1 through 3 and come up with three points. There's the founder, there's the fullness, and there's the firmness. And that seems to be the flow of verses 1 through 2. Um, Where would the founder, how would you see the founder in verses 1 through 2? Yeah, creation and providence or sustainer, right? What are God's works of God? What are God's works of providence? His works of providence are the most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all of his creatures and all of their actions. And you get a sense of that in verse 1 and 2. He's, he's preserving as well. So he's creator and preserver or sustainer. All right, how about the fullness? Where do you see fullness? Yeah. So it's interesting, verse, the first part of the verse is actually creation itself, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. So this includes the mountains, this includes the cattle, this includes uh, elk and antelope and prairie grass and all of that, the fullness of it. And then becomes people, right? And that's the second line, the world and those who dwell in it. So because people, it could become other uh, creatures as well, but you, you can't miss the, pers- the people side of it there as well so all the fullness all the people all of all living things animate and inanimate all that stuff all of it belongs to him okay how about the firmness should strike us as odd because we don't think this is necessarily firm yeah the seeds right that's planted uh it's grounded in the seas or founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers um but it brings across that picture that that it's not a you know the world is not a desert place per se right and they're all in fact in fact we find out which David didn't know that most of the earth is water you know and so very interesting um, so anyways there's the the firmness aspect the sense that it's that it is settled and firm and the Psalms in other places. What's the picture of firmness for the earth and for creation in other places in the Psalms? Anybody remember? Talks about how, he, yeah, the foundations of the earth and the pillars of the earth. There's all kinds of language to emphasize through the Psalms the firmness of the earth. Okay, 
which is interesting because Palestine has earthquakes just like Turkey does and, and California does. And so I'm sure there's sometimes it might have been doubt. Maybe the earth isn't so firm, you know. But, but it's that emphasis, the firmness of the earth. Okay, so founder, fullness, and firmness. So how do these two verses then maybe reorient our perception? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. There you go. So the trust should be in him and not them necessarily, right? Yeah. You know, think about this. Think about tra- take, think about exchanging uh, one of these words. Um, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness are of Russia and those who dwell therein. That would be fitting, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness are of and America and those who dwell therein. Okay. <laughs> yes. When we were in Turkey, it was so funny that the Turks claimed to be Christians and they thought all Americans were, they claimed to be Muslims, excuse me, and they, they thought all Americans were Christian because they're Americans, right? And I said, well, yeah, we're about as Christian as all of Turkey is Muslim and that. Got, at that point, it got them scratching their heads because they had the same problem. Like about 20% go to mosque, okay? Because it's not like Saudi Arabia where everybody's forced to go or something like that. It was very voluntary, so, yeah. Anyways, yeah, so, I mean, just that, that whole uh, practice, as you read to that, you go, oh, that's right. Everything the, 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 in the news and places, countries that maybe intimidate you, right? The earth is the Lord's and North Korea and those who dwell in North Korea, right? I mean, oh, oh, that's right. Okay? So I thought that was really good, just kind of a, as a practice. So any, see anything else about how maybe verse 1 and 2 help kind of reorient our perspective? Seeing none. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very good. Great. All right, so there's the big mouth of the funnel, and now we're moving down more concentrated, verses 3 through 6. So questions, questions launch, verse 3. I mean, there's a, a couple of questions there, and it actually sets the direction of this, this whole paragraph. What's the question? What are the questions in verse 3? Okay. Ooh. I hadn't thought about that, but I could see that one. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, very good. Okay, what else? So, any other questions? Do you see the, the questions there? What else do they, how else do they guide this paragraph? All right, so... Yeah. 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 So the questions are verse three, and so the rest of it is 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 uh, dealing with the answers to verse three, and that's what uh, Caitlin was referring to. And so, and if she wasn't, she just thought she was. Okay. All right. So before we dive in, let's go back momentarily. I want to go back to two passages. Okay. Because we've got to get something in our head because we get, this, uh, we get this wrong too often, okay? So look back at Philippians 3. We're going to come back to Psalm 24 in a second. 
And here's how I know we get it wrong, because we immediately come into Psalm 24, and we immediately say, well, that can't be any of us. Okay, that there's just no way. Okay, and in a sense it's true, in a sense that, well, we'll see. So, Philippians chapter 3. Paul is going to list out his, his qualifications. If anybody was going to brag about their connections and their descent, Paul, of all people, could do that. So starting at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, either Paul was lying through his teeth in that last statement. Okay, listen to it again. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Either Paul was lying through his teeth or he understood blamelessness biblically in a way that we normally don't understand it. And I'm going to say he wasn't lying. Okay? The blameless, being righteous under the law, blameless does not mean sinless. That's when we hear the word blameless, we automatically think sinless. No. Even when he sinned, he did all the right things, the right sacrifices. He went through all the right celebrations and all the festivals. He did, he kept the law in that sense, okay? And that's the blameless. And so he could say, uh, under the law, righteous, or uh, the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. And I think that's important to, to recognize that that's, uh, we're not fully there. We don't feel like we're there, but there is a sense in which uh, Jesus is, as we talked about last Sunday in the service, He is already moving us in that direction. There is a sense of blamelessness that we should be hoping for and expecting. Here's another one. And living toward. That's the other thing I was going to say. So look at Luke chapter 1. And somebody read verse 6. Luke 1, verse 6. And who, who, was, who was it that was, that was, that was righteous? Um, who was it that was righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes? Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. He's a priest. He's doing what the law requires okay, in that sense. So the only reason I'm emphasizing this is because we often will read something like Psalm 24 and immediately say, well, that's not about us. That's got to be about Jesus. Well, in the end, yes. But there is a sense of because of the grace of God at work, it's true, it's supposed to be true of us. Okay? There is a truthfulness to it. Yes? Oh, yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, the one who wrote this turns around and has to write Psalm 51 later, right? Yes. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. So as we get ready, get into these verses, just remember that, that this is not an impossibility per se. I mean, it's not that we're going to keep it fully. Again, David, who wrote Psalm 24, is going to have to write Psalm 51 later, okay? It's not entire sanctification, right? It's the trend, it's the, the leaning, it's the direction of our lives, it's in this sense, okay? So look at the, uh, look then... Who is it that shall ascend and who shall stand? Who, what are the characteristics that are listed then in the answer starting in verse 4? Okay, now that's interesting because when you get to Psalm 73, if you remember the sermon from New Year's Day, okay, which I got a chance to preach actually at the RUF at OSU this last Wednesday. It was really cool. And they stayed awake. It was awesome. And it was 8.30 at night. I hardly could stay awake. But they were, they were tracking. But there the psalmist, when he talks about the moment when he almost lost faith, he said, I began to question why I kept my heart clean and my hands. And so the heart and the hands go together in the psalms as an internal, external, uh, they're connected. 
Okay? And so here's, so when Tony refers to that, that's the internal and the external. Um, who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Okay? This, it doesn't mean sinless, spotlessly sinless, but there is a genuineness of intent and of direction, of, of re- repentance. Um, as, as uh, Martin Luther would say, the Christian life is a repentant life. That's probably gets pretty good. Okay, I think that's exactly good. All right. So then, what what's another trait? Yeah, does not lift up. In that interesting, does not lift up his soul to what is false. Okay. So look at the opposite of that. It's down in Psalm 25, which we'll look at next week. There's, a, By the way, there's several connections between Psalm 23 and 25 in this psalm. Uh, here's, here's one. Does not look of his soul to what is false. What's the opposite when you look at verse 1 in Psalm 25? Yes, I lift up my soul to the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Right? So here's... Here's the person who lifts his soul up to the Lord and doesn't lift up his soul. In other words, doesn't adore, doesn't worship, doesn't, doesn't give in to that which is false. Now, this could be idolatry, but it can be other things as well. Does not give in to what is false, okay? There's that, that notion. This actually, some of this actually fits in well. We start moving into Colossians chapter 2 and 3 here shortly. Okay, and the other trait is, does not what? Swear deceitfully, Okay. So those are just really, those are, a lot of those are both Godward and outward traits, okay? So there's the Godward aspect, clean hands, pure heart, does not lift up a soul to what is false, and at the same time does not swear deceitfully. When you think about the fear stuff, I was just reading it this morning in my devotions in Matthew 23, you know, woe to you scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites who say that you can swear by the, the, that your oath that's according to the sacrifice or your oath that's based on the altar that one you can get out of and the other one you can't. You know, he says, you guys are way off. I have squinty eyes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. There is a humility. And so the answer, so even in thinking the, the question, you, the way you read the question, Steve, as this is challenging the arrogant, there is a truth to that because when you look at the answers, all of this is not arrogant. Right? So who can, who can do this? Well, it's definitely not the arrogant. It's the one who's, you know, like you're talking about the humility or humility and the one who's saying, Lord, here I am, examine me. Right? Um, or at the end of Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, and so forth. Yes, Candace. I'm sorry? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a good, a good uh, application, okay? Because uh, as you're coming, I mean, that's why um, when you're coming, communion, you already know ahead of time. So you think back to 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul is talking about don't take unworthily. And there he's specifically talking about Christians who are being unworthy towards other Christians, right? They're not discerning the body. They're actually doing things that shatter the communion of the church. Well, they've got to think of, they've got to, Oh, there's things I need to get right before I have communion. So it's very fitting for us to come in that direction. I was also thinking about Advent. That's what Advent, the whole season of Advent, is that whole notion of preparing ourselves, in a sense, as it were, to receive the Lord who's coming, right? That same aspect, okay? Very good. Anybody else? Yes, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. Yeah, obviously, it's not the one who's, who's this way all the time because there's where we fall short, right? And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So then as you look at these traits, which of these traits connect with Psalm? I already gave you Psalm 25. I showed you the one that connects to Psalm 25. It does not lift his soul up to, to falsehood. To you, O Lord, lift up my soul. There's that trait, the connection with Psalm 25. Where's the one that's, that's a connection with Psalm 23? Maybe not that clear, but it was clear to me. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So it's trusted in the Lord, the Lord of Psalm 23. Very good. And also when it says, who will ascend the, the hill of the Lord, who will stand in his holy place, where does Psalm 23 end? In the house of the Lord, in the holy place. Right? So, again, there's just connections backward and forward in these psalms. They're not necessarily one-off, standalone psalms. They, they're put in the place they're put for various reasons. Um, and there's connections. Very good. Okay, anybody else in verses 3 through 6? Oh, I got more. Okay, I got more. So then the relationship of verse 5 to verse 3 and 4 could be picked up in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So notice verse 5 and how it connects... Uh, it's a relationship to verse 3 and, three and 4. Who, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So some could misunderstand verses 3 and 4 uh, with verse 5 as, well, you've got to earn, you've got to gain your righteousness, okay? But it's still something, notice verse 5, is still something received, but there's a connection between justification and sanctification, there's a connection between justification and even our good works, not that our good works save us. So I love the way the confession puts it. This is a little bit long reading, this one, and then the next slide, so follow along here. So these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and the evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus, thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, notice that, their fruit unto holiness, they may have uh, the end, which is eternal life. And then in, uh, later on in that chapter of the confession, in paragraph 6, notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him. Not as they, they were in this life, holy, unblameable, and unre, unreprovable in God. Uh, uh, sorry, not as though they were in this life, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them and His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. I know that makes it fits in your head, but the idea is, as David is talking in Psalm 24, this is not the guy who's choosing to do it all on his own. He's, he's coming to God the way God wants him to come, which means he's coming under the blood of sacrifices, right? So there's, there's another's righteousness, pour, or there's another life poured out for his, there's cleansing, there's that sense of atonement going on, and all of verse chapter Psalm 24 is coming within that. That's why I think very likely that if first, uh, 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 15 are the backdrop, that it's intriguing that David has sacrifices every so many feet as he's going along with the, the ark, because it is remembering, it's not, I can't do this on my own, it's not me this is because of the way that God has made open for us and He provided the means for us. Does it make sense? Oh, but she said it better and quicker and I said it long-winded.
Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Right, right, right. And that's where, when you get to verse 5 then, you go, oh, it's these who end up approaching. It's the ones whom the Lord has blessed, those who are righteous, who have the righteousness from the God of their salvation. Yeah. 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 I realize that that's why earlier, I think it was before you came in the class, we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth, and Luke says they were righteous according to the commandments of God and blameless. And then Paul even says uh, the righteousness according to the law, he was blameless. So it doesn't mean sinless. It means doing what, you know, actually doing what God has said because he said, here's the way in, here's the way. And so he did that. And so we said earlier that it, it's, this is not about sinless perfection, Psalm 24, because the David who wrote Psalm 24 turns around later and has to write Psalm 51, right? We, no, that's okay. But, but that's why I brought it up, because it is a struggle. We do struggle. We read this and we go, well, this is obviously clearly only about Jesus, and it's not only about Jesus. Here's the king, and this is a psalm for the king's people, and this is also pointing us to the greater son of David. So all those different layers. You remember that? I put in that picture of layers. You have to keep those layers in mind. And so, so it is meant, part of it is meant, remember this, part of the psalm is meant, as Candace was pointing out, preparing us to draw near to the Lord. If this is what God wants, then what do I do? Well, maybe I need to change some of my ways. Maybe I am lifting up my soul to falsehood. Maybe I am swearing deceitfully. I need to repent of that so I can draw near. And here's the one who gives me then his blessing and his righteousness, right? You see what I'm saying? And so it's meant as both motivation as well as direction in a sense. Hope that helps. Moose. If they did what the law said, yes, because they'd be circumcised. They'd be circumcised. Yeah, they'd be circumcised. They'd be able to go in. Yeah, right. Sure. Right. Right, right. Because they don't have any faith in the Lord. Right. And that's where you have to start. Okay. So remember this. So let me come at it a different way. What are the three uses of the law? Anybody remember the three uses of the law? What's the first use? To show us our sin. Second use. It's a social curb. Right? This is, think about verses 4 and 5. It'd be great if, if you know, four, five, uh, 3, 4, and 5, and so forth, if everybody lived this way. You could actually trust handshake contracts. You know what I'm saying? So it's a social curb, but then what's the third use of the law? This is what sanctification looks like. So when you're reading Psalm 24, for example, you look at it and you go, well, I don't fit the bill. Ah, there's the first use of the law. But it'd be great if I did and if we did and, and so forth. Second use of the law and, you know, I believe in this Lord, and he's, I trust him. I think I need to be this way. Third use of the law. 
Does that make sense? So you, as you read it, yeah, it is ultimately going to be about Jesus, and you don't feel like you fit the bill, but this is, this is where we're headed, right? And this is where we start moving in this direction. Does that make sense? So I'm not talking just to you, Randy. I'm, I've got Caitlin, my other eye, right over here. You remember that actor who had his eyeballs that could do this, you know? I wish I could do that because I had one on you. All right. All right, let's move on. Yes. I'm getting there. But go ahead and ask your question because it's a great segue. How do we know that the connection of verses 5 to 3 through 4 is the case? It's verse 6. So you look at verse 6. Notice, such is the generation. So, so, so there's a, there's a um, if you want to call it like a, a legal declaration of verses 3 through 5, this is what's necessary to come into the presence of the Lord. But then David comes down to verse 6 and said, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Okay, let me move through this real quick. So it is a communal aspect, right? And you notice some of those traits, they are very communal. So it fits, but it's the idea, but it's the declaration. This is the generation uh, of those who seek the Lord. Notice that they seek the Lord. This is why the Gentile wouldn't be allowed in because it's not that, that crucial ground part, seeking the Lord, okay? But it's not me alone, as, as Caitlin was pointing out. It's, there's a, this communal, this corporate uh, part of it as well. Let me try a different way. First off, there's two different Hebrew words for seek there in verse 6. They don't, it doesn't make much difference. They're just synonyms, but I just wanted to point out that out to you. It's very interesting that David is kind of racking the dictionary to, to figure out different ways to put the word seek in there so it catches your attention as you're reading it. Um, but this is how it reads in the Hebrew, something like this. This generation are those who seek you who seek your face, Jacob. God of is not in the Hebrew, right? The translators added that because they didn't know what to do with that part right there. But it simply says, who seek your face, Jacob. And it's interesting to go back to some of the other questions that it ends by that note, Jacob. How often did Jacob seek the face of God? Think, think of his lifestyle, too, while you're thinking about this. But how often did he seek the face of God? Yeah, not very often. But there's one primal, primary moment. What's that primary moment? That's right. He's the one that wrestles with the angel, and he calls the place Peniel because I've seen the face of God. So it's interesting that that note is to remind you that's the kind of generation we're talking about. We still struggle. We still wrestle. We still fall short like Jacob. And yet the crucial aspect is seeking the face of the Lord. I don't know if that gets anywhere close to answering your question, Caitlin. But, but it's intriguing that it, it, it's that way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Right. That's the whole point of the psalm. That's sort of the whole point of the whole psalm is this is, it's that third use of the law. So this first use and the third use. Oh, I've fallen short, but what I need to do is instead of giving up and walking away and say, ah, instead say, oh, I need to, there's some changes. Not just me, but the generation that seeks the Lord. Yes. 
And then saying that in a more corp corporate, communal aspect. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. So Ralph Davis, still talking about Jacob. Ralph Davis put it this way. I, I just thought this was great. There need to be more Jacob clones. Uh, if you knew Ralph Davis, that's pretty cutting edge, okay? There need to be more Jacob clones in Yahweh's holy place, ones with Jacob attitude that refuses to let go of God until he blesses them. Many of the worshipers at the Lord's Hill are desperate people holding on to Yahweh by their fingernails because they know they have nowhere else to run. It's a great statement. All right, you ready to move on? Yeah, right. Right. All right, so then the last part of uh, Psalm 24 starts doing this, lift up your heads, O gates, okay? And seeing how we don't live in fortresses anymore, we have no idea what that means, okay? But this is, this is Mycenae. Ann and I were at Mycenae, which is where Agamemnon was from, if you ever read the Iliad. Okay, this is Mycenae, and Ann and I went there in 1983. This is the head of the gate. There were actually two lions up here, and there were actual heads up here, until the city was conquered and whoever conquered the city knocked off the heads of the gate, okay? But what it is, so lift up your heads, O gates, is calling to the, to the uh, well, a couple things, but calling to the watchers, there's the two lions. You can see where the heads are missing now, right? But it's something like that. And so it's a, who would be there at the gate, there looking over the top where the lion's heads would have been? Who would have been there? Yeah, the soldiers, the gatekeepers. If you watched uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, you should see a couple of those moments in there, right? And so the call is to those who have control of the gates, who have the gateway into the city. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, uh, uh, the everlasting doors. In other words, open up. Here comes the king. As they, potentially, if this is about Second uh, Samuel 6, as they bring the ark in. But whatever the case is, it's calling to the city to the guards to, to open the doors, okay? So there's the heads of the gates because it would have been blocked, secured. Uh, in fact, um, this is a very narrow walkway up. It was meant that way, so only you could only go up maybe like two soldiers abreast, so it was easier to pick you off, right? And so you've got to call ahead of time. We're safe. We're the good guys. Don't shoot us, right? And that's... Then that call, look at the heads, your heads on gates. Okay. So then you get the psalm, then you get the verses 7 through 10, and that's the picture you have there. So it's at this juncture, you can almost make out an uh, antiphonal singing. I always want to call it antiphonal, but it's antiphonal singing. There's a canter and respondence, even though it's to the gates and stuff, but there's this back and forthness, okay, like a canter and the respondence. All right, and what would be, tell me how this would go. Who would, what would the cantor be doing? What would he be saying? No. Probably the first one, verse 7. The, the call, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O everlasting doors. Let the king of glory come in. And then the folks responding from the gates would say, who is this king of glory? Right? Who is it? Give us the, give us the sign here. There's the sign here. Give us the counter sign so we know that you're, you're the good guys, right? And so who is this king of glory? And then comes the response, another response. I can almost imagine the whole congregation bringing up the ark if this was the moment, shouting back to the folks at the gate, Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. Then you have, again, this response in verse 9 and 10. The whole idea, it seems to me, is that conquest is being pictured, conquest is being pictured in this antiphonal dialogue. Um, how would it be conquest? If a king is coming to a city that's gates are closed, how would it be conquest? The surrender, right? They're opening the gates. If they open the gates, it's a surrender. 
If they don't open the gates, and he's really a mighty king, what's going to happen? He's coming either way. Either open hand, receive him, or take what comes. Right? Bad news, good news. Anybody hear any of that before? Yeah. So it's a, it's a conquest picture. All right? And so this one's actually uh, beckoning an open-handed submission, surrender conquest. Here comes the king. Be ready for him. Okay, here he comes. Open up to him. Um, so how is the conqueror then described? Now I'm using this on purpose because of the language that's used here. How is the conqueror described? Who is the conqueror? The king of glory, okay? How is the conqueror then described? Yes, yeah, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. And he's also, down in verse 10, he's the Lord of what? Hosts, which could be armies, Okay? In fact, I think if you use the NIV, it probably says Lord of Armies or something like that. Okay? And so it's, that's the conqueror, the description of the conqueror. This is the one that can conquer, open up. So Ralph Davis goes on to say, says, You have no comfort if the king of glory is a wimp who reeks of hand cream. Now this is classic Del Ralph Davis right here. Okay? You have no comfort if the king of glory is a wimp who reeks of hand cream. You only have solace if he is your defender in the thick of war. Just the fact he's pictured as here, as a god of war, as the lord of war, okay? That's not all that God is pictured as. Sometimes Christians obsess on one image and they stay there forever, and that's not always good, okay? So there's other pictures, father, shepherd, and so on. There's lots of other pictures. But here in the psalm, it is as the one who can triumph in war, which is comforting comforting why would it be comforting who would that be comforting for to know that this is a god who is a god of war who can actually triumph over all enemies the oppressed like who yeah jerusalem huh all of us okay you just start going through all kinds of people's lives and you would say oh this is good news yeah persecuted church revelation is all written for the persecuted church in that sense those of you ladies in the Revelation class is written for the persecuted church. And the persecuted church has always found solace in Revelation because the king of glory is coming in and the persecutors will not win in the end. Okay? So, I mean, this is, just, this is good news for so many people. If, let me use a John Calvin thing here, if they receive with open hands. Right? I think it's pretty good. All right. Um, oh, before I go on, any questions up to this point or anything you want to add? I got some questions here, real quick for us. Anything else I can confuse you on? I'm really good at it. Okay, so why would Psalm 24 make a good Advent Psalm or Ascension Day Psalm? Yeah, yeah, right? And then you have a sense of ascension. Uh, the fact that here comes the king is coming up, right? You can't miss it on the day of ascension. Our Lord uh, 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 ascending into the Father's right hand and he is now a crowned, coronated king of kings and lord of lords. Okay? Have you received him? Yes. So how could Psalm 24 help you to keep your head on straight? Hmm. That's a great title of the book. Anyway, how could Psalm 24 help you to keep your head on straight during tumultuous times, nationally, internationally, personally, in your job, in your family? Strong and mighty. Yeah. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And that's a good point. Speaking this to each other, so the, the value, by the way, of singing the psalms and incorporating the psalms in worship on a regular basis, right, is really important. But even as we go in together in difficult times being able to say, and this is one of the things I'd like us trying to do with, as we do this work through the Psalms, is thinking how can I use this Psalm to minister to someone else? That is an aspect of what we're doing in this class.
Yeah. 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 Yep. Very good. So Fred brings it up, and this is where I was going with this too. Psalm 24 ends on a note of conquest, summoning us to submit to the King of glory. Have you done this? It is. And it's also challenging. Again, three uses of the law. We read it, and we go, oh, I see my sin and you run to Jesus. Have you, have you submitted to him, right? And then the third use of the law, submitting to him, this is the way I want to live. That, okay? Great. All right. So next week, bum, 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 Psalm 25. I love Psalm 25. I memorized it in the New King James Version. So if next week, if I start rambling off in a different translation, you will understand what that's all about. Yes. We sing it this last Advent. Edmund Clowney wrote a version of this that we sing every every year, more than every, more than once a year. Yeah, and it, I don't remember the hymn number. I was going. To, I was thinking about having us all sing it, but I was seeing the time. So, but anyways, yeah. It, so there's a meter, there are two metered versions, if I remember correctly, that are actually in our in our hymn book of Psalm 24. So, well, let's pray. Lord God, we come to you. We see Psalm 24, we hear it. Uh, first, we are so grateful that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There's nothing outside of your control. There's nothing outside of your domain. Sometimes, Lord, we live and act as if everything or those things are outside of your control. Forgive us for that. Maybe be grounded again. And Lord, we're preparing to enter into your worship, ascending the hill of the Lord and standing in your holy place. We pray we look at these verses, we think about our own hands and heart. And to be honest, not always clean and not always pure. Sometimes we do look up our souls to what is false, and sometimes we do swear deceitfully. Forgive us, Lord. Bring us real, genuine, life-changing repentance, blessing and righteousness from the God of our salvation. And may it be the generation, may this be a generation for those who seek you and seek, the face of, uh, seek your face. And so, Lord, as we hear the invitation, lift up your heads, O gates, Lord, we open up ourselves to submit to you, to allow you to conquer us. In Jesus' name, amen.